What's the point? I'm wired that way. I want to know, buddy, let's get down to it. What's it going to take to get me the information I need to get on with it? And so what the writer's doing here is the writer's saying, okay, I know it's been tough. I've been talking about old Mel again, Melchizedek over here. He was a shadowy figure. And I know we've been talking a lot of covenant language and we've been talking about all of the sacrificial system and the priest and the the Levites and how we're in the loins of Abraham and all of that jazz. And now he says, but I'm going to get right down to brass tacks. We're going to get right down to the foundational truths about why you should never leave Jesus and go back into your old ways. Never depart from Christ and go backward into your religiosity and your man-made traditions. He said the point is Jesus is so much better. Let's unpack that as we read this chapter. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And I'll pick up at 1 and go all the way through 13. The writer says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated, that's a repetition, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. That's a reference back to the Mosaic tabernacle days. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He's he's higher than the heavens. He's higher than the earth, right? And watch this. This very important language in 5. These priests served a copy and the shadow of the earthly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he set about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That was God speaking to Moses over in Exodus 25. But now, and that's important language, but now, that was then, this is now, he Jesus Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also or is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So that kind of sets the stage. Now we're going to spend a long time in Jeremiah 31, one of the longest Old Testament quotes sequentially in the New Testament. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, God said this back in the days of Jeremiah. He said this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their righteousness, and their sins, and their lawless deeds. And I love this. And I will remember these things no more. And that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Heavenly Father, wonderful, powerful truth you're giving us here. We are incredibly grateful. I have been blessed and I think I will be better for having spent time 
digging out uh, in through this text and looking at the different truths that emerge here and hopefully being able to share them with clarity today and with accuracy today and certainly with anointing. Lord, I need a touch. Uh, the physical body is wanting to fight and wanting to wrestle against the spirit this morning because, Lord, there's been a lot of fun to be had this weekend, but now we got to get down to it. Lord, we got to see this truth, to hear it, to obey it, to be better and different when we leave than when we came for your glory, Lord, not because we have to, but because we get to. It is a joy to be able to share this now. Please bless this moment in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, be seated. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the first half of the chapter, 1 through 6, and I'm going to give you an overarching view, and then we're going to unpack the specifics in the second half. So let's look at 1 to 6, and let me give you this stacking truth, okay? It's like this. True disciples of Christ, true followers, true students of the Lord Jesus, which we are, if you're a Christian, true disciples of Christ have, first, a superior priest in a superior place with superior promises. I want us to get this because I don't want you to just believe it in this room. I want you to live like it out there. I want the world to see that as followers of Jesus, we are not perfect. We are not better than them. We have a superior priest within a superior place with superior promises to anything the world can offer. And the idea here in verse 1 is really taken from Psalm 110, and it actually shows up in the very beginning of this book of Hebrews, and it's talking about the Lord Jesus being seated at God's right hand. Now, this is the main point of things we're saying. We have such a high priest, a superior high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Remember, The Aaronic priesthood, the line of Aaron, they always were up, moving. No seats in the tabernacle. No seats in the temple. The mercy seat, yes, but that's the throne of God. No man dare sit there. And so covered by gold and the cherubim there guarding the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, the the priests continued at their task over and over and over, and yet Jesus finished the work at Calvary, ascends to the Father's right hand, and he sits down. It is a picture. And when it says he sits by the throne of majesty, well, majesty is God the Father. In fact, we would read in Hebrews 1.3, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, Jesus himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of majesty. Jesus did the work and he said, it is finished. Christ was a priest who served in the true tabernacle, not set up with the hands of men like the tabernacle of Moses' day, but by God himself. You'll recall in Exodus 25 and following, Moses on Mount Sinai got explicit instructions of how to set up this earthly tent, this very specific rectangular tent And it had an outer court. And in that tent, there were two primary chambers, the first being the holy place, the second more of a square, a cube, being the holy of holies or the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And so the Lord says, look, with this new priesthood, with this new person, with this new place, the Lord Jesus, those things, they were temporary. Verse 5, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Now those words are interesting. The sketch or the copy. 
Hupodigma, hupo, two words in Greek, hupo under, digma, um, a sample or even an example. And so the Bible says that the tabernacle and later the temple would be under the real thing. Not the same thing at all. And then he uses some other words in here. He uses the word uh, skia, a foreshadow, a shadow or a foreshadow, even a shading. And, and another word, like a pattern, he uses the word typos. You've heard of that, T-Y-P-O-S in the Greek when I anglicize it. But in English, it would be a type. So there's a type, there's a shadow, there is an under example. That's what he's saying here. You see, the earthly ministry of the priest was merely a copy of what God would do in heaven. And he uses this language, but now. Verse 6, but now. Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. Now mediator, guys, means more than Jesus was a middleman. Jesus was not just a middleman. He certainly was, but he's so much more. He is the one who guaranteed our salvation. He stands between God and man. He bridges the gap between us, and yet at the same time, he pays the price for us. And so I would ask you a question. If the Old Testament stuff were what we would call today, in common language, we would say this. That was a blueprint. That's what we would say. We'd say that was a blueprint of the real thing that was coming. But would you, let's say you had this beautiful idea for a home. Your forever home, well forever home is not true for the Christian. But let's say your forever earthly home. And you had this idea and you drew it out and it was just perfect. You know a draftsman or an architect and the drawings were just, just what you wanted. Do you want to live on the blueprint? Is the blueprint going to do anything for you when the winter comes? The blueprint's not going to get it done. It's just showing you what's coming, right? And so you don't want to live in the blueprint. You want to live in the finished house. That's what we want. Uh, let me ask you, do you want to pet the shadow of a dog or do you want to pet a dog, dog lover? Well, I think you want to, do you want to pet a cat or the shadow? I'd prefer to pet the shadow of a cat, by the way. I'm not a cat guy. That's just me. Not a big cat. But, like, uh, okay, a spider. Do you want to squish the shadow of a spider or do you want to squish the real spider? I want to squish them both, man. Kill them all. Kill them all. I don't like them. But you understand the difference. You know the difference between a shadow. Now, a little kid, you know, uh, Sophia's doing her little Frankenstein walk now at 11 months old, and she might at times be frightened of her shadow. Why is that thing following me, right? But when we get bigger and mature, we understand that's not the real thing. That's not going to hurt you. That is, it's, it's really showing the real thing. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so what are these better or superior promises that we have? If we, in fact, have a superior priest in a superior place with superior promises, better than all the old man-made systems, what do we really have? Well, get this down. Because of a new and better covenant with God through Christ, a new and better covenant, we can receive... A new nature. That's the first thing I want you to see. And by that I mean one is external, one is internal. External versus internal. Let me unpack this in its historical context, okay? So for the second half of this chapter, what we're referring to is in the 6th century B.C., in the time of Jeremiah, God found fault with his people. The essential problem was, the Bible teaches us here in verse 9, they did not continue or remain faithful to God's covenant. 
And so judgment and exile followed. You'll recall biblical history, the northern kingdom of Israel split with the southern kingdom of Judah. They were led off into captivity, and Jeremiah lived in a time of separation between the two. The people of God were divided. And so the proclamation of a covenant ensured that there would be a healing of the breach of the people of God. The promise of healing among the Jews symbolized symbolized reconciliation that would later come not just between Jew and Jew, but between all of the world. When did the nations get scattered? Remember Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, or Babel, the Tower of Babel, the nations are scattered. The peoples are scattered, different languages, different nations, and they've always been separated. People have been warring over this little bit of ground or that little piece of something. And yet, the Bible promises that there's a new covenant in God where one day all the peoples from around the globe will be brought together. It'll be those of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And and heaven is going to be this grand kaleidoscope of worshipers. And as I said in the early hour, that if you don't like a variety and a kaleidoscope of people from all over everywhere, brother, sister, you're not ready for heaven yet. It is going to be very colorful and very multicultural. And it's going to be a wonderful place where people will worship worship God that don't all look like you or don't all look like me because every man and woman, boy and girl has been created in the image, imago dei of a holy God. And one day Jesus will gather all of his people and we will have the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will worship God together. This is the promise of the new covenant is a better covenant, a better promise with a better priest. Think about that, guys. It's an incredible thing. It's incredible. And Jesus said it six centuries after Jeremiah. Jesus said, this blood, remember, third cup, cup of redemption, this blood, this is the cup of the new covenant. It is poured out for you. The new covenant is not marked by baptism. It's not marked by circumcision. It's not even marked by the church. As important as the body of Christ is, the new covenant is marked by the blood, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there's this long, glorious Jeremiah 31 quote, and we better pay attention to it. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Guys, that's different. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then we don't even have to teach our neighbor. I'll get to that. What does all of that mean? Well, the law had been external. God had written the law, the the Ten Commandments, the double stone tablet. He wrote it with his own finger on the stone. But now God says in the new covenant, I'm not writing on stone. I'm writing on a heart of flesh. I'm writing in your mind. I'm writing in your heart. I'm putting my law inside of you. It is now internal. No longer it is relegated to Sinai, but it is everywhere the people of God are. And so when I'm thinking through this, I thought about these words, obligation to adoration. I thought, you know, at one time you must do this. If you want to be made right with God, you must do this. But then when Jesus comes, it is finished, paid in full. He's done everything there needs to be done for us to be right with God. Now God says, you get to do this. Now God says, you do this because you love me and we have a relationship. I mean, guys, have any of you ever bought makeup flowers for your wife because you've been a bozo? Anybody? 
There's one honest brother in the whole room. One on, okay, a couple of you are honest. Makeup flowers can possibly be effective, guys. But, you know, I'm sorry, honey, I've really messed up. Here, I just want you to know I love you. You're as beautiful and as sweet as these roses. Here you go, sweetheart. But now, here's the thing. Have you ever bought flowers just because you really just love her? You ever bought, the, don't raise your hand now. Have you ever bought flowers because you just wanted to buy flowers? Have you ever walked in with that beautiful bouquet and you were going to cut them and get them ready and put them in the vase and you say, baby, I just love you and I just wanted you to have these. And she looks at you and says, what have you done? <laughs> right? And you say, no, honey, it's not that. That's just, I love you. And you say, no, really, what have you done? And then you have to confess about the new fishing rod or maybe the boat or whatever it is. I mean... If you give them just because, I really love you, I adore you, you are precious to me, that is a different thing. And what God is saying in this new covenant is, I adore you, and I'm asking you to love me in return, to let me be your Abba, Daddy, to let me be your Heavenly Father, just because. Look at Psalm 119 with me on the screens. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. I was preaching on this text in the little kids' chapel this week in school. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. A glorious truth that the word of God comes off the page and into my heart. Not just on stone tablets, but on a heart of flesh. Because the law could reveal sin, but never remove sin. It could not justify nor save sinners. Only Christ can save sinners like me and like you. And the law is the thermometer, but the gospel is the thermostat. The gospel brings transformation. And I would ask, do you have a new nature in Christ? Are you obeying God because you have to or because you get to? Is it obligation or is it adoration? In the new system, the new covenant, the Bible says we have a new nature. It is external versus internal. But we also have a new knowledge. A new knowledge. There was a religious knowledge and still for many people around the world they walk in this. And it's very sad to me. That all they know is the religious motion versus the relationship. So religious versus relational in this new knowledge. When we look at the end of 10 into 11, God said, I'm not only going to write my law on their mind and heart, but I will be their God. They shall be my people, and none of them has to teach his neighbor. None his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Man. That's a beautiful, close relationship between God and his people that this God would grant us this relationship with him. Look at Exodus 6, 7 with me real quick on the screens. He says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is telling them even way back then before he delivered them from Egyptian slavery, I want to walk with you. But they would break his covenant over and over and over. And God says, look, I'm going to do away with that privileged, distinct class of priests to teach others. All will know me. 
All the the distinctions of rank and importance disappear. And from the least to the greatest, God will know his people and his people will know their God. And the Holy Spirit, according to John 14, will walk with us. And this knowledge is not confined to a privileged few. God will know all who want to know him. All who come to him by grace through faith. And sometimes I meet religious people who are going through the motions, but they never really had a real connected relationship with the God who made them. And it's sad to me. One of these guys came out of Duke Divinity School. He came to our seminary years and years ago. And they invited him in as a guest lecturer. They did not agree with his positions at all. But they wanted us students to hear the positions of those who were not conservative. And he stood up and he said to a room of seminarians, hundreds of us, probably a good 800 to maybe 1,000 of us, and he said to us, we need to take the Bible out of the hands of common people. He said, unless they have multiple degrees and can read the Greek and the Hebrew and they are learned and part of the professional religious establishment, we should remove the Bibles from their hands. And I'm sitting there as a student looking at this guy like, dude, I haven't been in ministry all that long, but I've been saying the exact opposite of that from day one. I've been saying we need to get the Bible into the hands of more people. I've been a huge supporter of Gideon ministry my whole, my whole uh, ministry life. And I said, we need the Word of God in the hands of people. And I beg you, read the Word of God for yourself. Every year we give you a reading plan and we say, do this or do something. But you need to take in the Word of God. You need to be filled with the Word of God to write it on your heart. You need to have the Word of God in you so that the Word of God comes through you and other people see Christ in you. And I thought, this dude is crazy. Why is he saying this? Why? Because he was an elitist. He wanted the power. He wanted the knowledge. Sounds like much of the history of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages especially. But they want the power. They want the knowledge. They want to keep us dumb sheep where we belong. But the reality is, as an under-shepherd of Christ, here's what I can do. I can lead you to green pastures. I can put you in front of still waters. But I can't make you eat. I can't make you drink. And what I know that we must do is we must eat and drink some every day from the fountain of God's word and blessing. Because if I just eat today on Sunday, and I don't eat again until the following Sunday, it's not going to take long, and I'm malnourished. I'm unhealthy. I'm sick. And I think what we need to do is remember that with this new knowledge, this is a relational knowledge, not just a religious knowledge. See, I'm not asking you to read the Bible because it's a religious activity. I don't want you to read it to check a box. Don't read to finish. Read to change. Read to be transformed. Read to commune with God. Read to hear straight from the the Lord himself, to know his heart, to know his mind, to be connected through Christ. We have a new nature. We have a new knowledge. And this is a big one. And this is where I want to land the plane today because I want you to really hear me. Hear the word that God has for me and for you. We get a new forgiveness. The temporal versus the eternal. The worldly and temporal versus the heavenly and eternal. Consider forgiveness between the old covenant which was always incomplete. You had to go over and over and over again versus the new. Done 
finished. Again, even in the Catholic system, well, now you must come and confess your sins to the priest. How long has it been since you've confessed? Bubba, when you confess your sins to the great high priest Jesus, you don't have to go to any mortal man. You have it cleansed, finished. It is done and over with, and that's where I want us to just land here for a minute. Look at verse 12. Look at this. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. In other words, all their junk I will remember no more done man that is a good word isn't it that is a good word for us the New Testament sacrifices brought about a remembrance of sins not a remission of sins in the New Testament Jesus sacrifice brings about forgiveness remission of sins So let's look at 13 real quick, just because I want you to be clear on what it doesn't say. In that, he says, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This does not mean abolition of the law. This does not mean that the, for instance, Ten Commandments no longer apply to you. That you can do anything you want and God forgives you and you're fine. That is not what it means. It doesn't mean an abolishment of law. It means fulfillment. What it does mean is an abolishment of the old covenant system. That Levitical system, as Desiree rightly said at the end last week when she was coming to announce and pray, and she said, aren't you glad we didn't have to bring a bunch of animals in here? Aren't you glad we didn't have to come? And I had to go ceremonially dip my hands in the bronze basin and wash up and come and baptize my hands and then come over here and slaughter the innocent animal. Aren't you grateful that you don't have to do that? Aren't you grateful you don't have to wait to go to sacrifice or even wait to come to church to be right with God? I want you to get this good and biblical and practical application here. The old covenant did its job. It showed what was coming. It said there's going to be a new and better way, but you had to go over and over and over. And the Bible uses this word. It became obsolete. Now, immediately when I read that word and unpacked it in the Greek, obsolete, outdated, I thought of all of our hundreds of VHS tapes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And all of the stuff we had, you know, people were like, well, that Disney stuff's going to be worth a fortune. Well, I don't want no Disney stuff in my house right now. Okay, so I just don't need all of that. Here's the thing, though. All of those tapes, y'all remember we used to go on vacation, pack a camera, pack a camcorder, praise God. I mean, put that puppy on your shoulder. And some of y'all are like, well, that's that newfangled stuff. I didn't have that back in my day. Okay, well, it's my generation, a big honking camcorder, full-size tape. And then when we got the little tapes, we thought we were cool, and all of it's gone now. All of it. Just put it on your phone. Put it on your phone. And all of those boxes and boxes and boxes of VHS tapes or the little micro eight tapes or when I was doing music back in the day, I thought, man, this mini disc technology is the best it's ever been. It'll never go anywhere. I'll be able to use my mini disc forever. Man, you can't even find many discs on eBay hardly anymore. What's going on with this world? And it's so comforting to know that while the tech changes and everything else, man, AI is coming to the fore, but I'm here to tell you there is not enough artificial intelligence on the earth or in the universe to save you from your sins. There's not going to be a Calvary 2.0 because 1.0 was sufficient, church. That's all you needed. You needed the finished work of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. You don't need a second version. There's no new and improved way. I know churches are getting cute and pastors are getting trendy, but the reality is the old way is the right way because it is God's way. And the Bible says God will remember their sins no more. And I need to hear that today. If nobody else needs to hear it today, I need to hear it today. It is a reassurance that forgiveness is complete. And unlike God, we will say, well, I can forgive, but buddy, I can't forget. Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. What does it mean? That God remembers sin and iniquity and transgression and unrighteousness no more. Well, the statement will be quoted again in Hebrews 10. We will get there one day. Does it mean that our all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God, does it mean that he physically in some way forgets, actually forgets? Well, if God could actually forget anything, he wouldn't be God. But what it really means is he will hold this against us no more. Of course the God of the Bible has the power to recall all, but he chooses not to. He deals with us on the basis of grace and mercy, not law and merit. Once our sin has been confessed and forgiven, it is never brought up again. The matter is settled eternally. And as a pastor who's counseled two and a half decades, I've often heard people say that, well, I forgive, but I cannot forget. Well, of course not. Unless there's some physiological anomaly with you, you probably can't. But that's not the point. I want you to understand this truth today. To forget means to not hold it against a person who's wronged us. And here's the biggest lie that Satan's told some of you. Listen to me. This is the biggest lie some of you have believed. Well, I believe that God has forgiven me, Pastor, but I just can't forgive myself. Quote me that in Scripture. You bring me the chapter and verse, and I'll walk with you. But if you can't find that in the Word of the living God, then I don't want to hear that garbage anymore. Because here's the thing. When you say, Pastor, I can't forgive myself, But you pretend to believe that God has forgiven you. Number one, you're calling God a liar. Number two, you're saying you're holier than God. But my standard is higher than God's. He doesn't hold it against me anymore, but I hold it against myself. Now listen to me. I'm going to say this in love. There's not a soul in this room holier than Almighty God. And if God says he forgot it and he cast it as far as the east is from the west, then brother, you ought to let it go. I'm not saying you don't remember it. I'm saying you walk in the truth of God, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and you say, if God said it's finished, if God said it's cleansed, if God says he'll remember it no more, then I need to stop bringing it up. Because here's what we're doing. We're declaring, I know better than God. I'm a little holier than God. And God has declared you forgiven. 
God has declared you cleansed. But every time you bring it back up, it is though you are slapping him in the face and saying the sufficiency of Calvary is called into question. I don't know if when Jesus cried to Telestai, if he really meant it or not. I don't know, God, when you wrote 1 John 1, 9, if you really meant if we'll confess our sins, you'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I don't know that I really take you at your word. Quit trying to forgive yourself and walk in the truth that is the word of God and the declaration from that word. I will remember your sin no more. Some of you need that freedom today because the foundation of forgiveness is not what you do for God, but it is what Jesus has done for you. You need to let it go. Some of you believe you can't really serve God because of the past. Well, now, if you're not a Christian, you're still enslaved to your sin. If you're not a Christian and have never surrendered to Jesus, your sin is still on your shoulders. You still bear the weight of guilt. But if you have truly cried out to God and asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and I don't mean some hocus-pocus prayer, I mean you are genuinely born again, then there is nothing so bad that can keep you from God and serving and living with him, and there is nothing so good that can get you there apart from Jesus Christ. You must surrender and trust in his finished work. God took the initiative to offer us grace and mercy. And listen now, we love and forgive because we are loved and forgiven. And some of you are not going to like this part. But if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Pastor, you don't get it. You don't know what they did to me. More than that, you don't know what they did to my spouse. You, you have no idea what they did to my children. You have no idea. You have no idea how bad it was. You don't understand. Well, I trust that they didn't spit on them and nail them to a cross. I trust that they didn't strip them of all clothing and dignity. And I trust that they didn't put them on public display and take their life. But even if they did take the life of the one you love, the example of Christ and what would come across his lips in the midst of horrendous punishment for sin he never committed was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And all I can tell you, folks, is that I've held on to mine way too long. And if I lived in my past, I would never stand before you today. Quite frankly, even if I lived in present sin. And, um, you know, you ride with Pastor Mike Floyd back from Nashville after a football game with a bunch of drunks on the road. you got to check your prayer life <laughs> and your thought life. Because we and some of you that went might have been the only sane people on the roads coming back yesterday. And I still sin and still struggle in my thoughts and with my words and actions. But I could let the enemy tell me over and over, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. And I could begin to think, you know what, I'm not worthy. But then the focus is in the wrong place, isn't it? Hey, you know what? 
I'm not worthy. I've never been worthy, nor will I ever be worthy, but my Jesus is worthy, and he paid the price for me then and now and forever, and because he is worthy, I will serve him. I will honor him. I will give my life to him. I will walk in the path that he has made for me, not because I'm going to be perfect, because he is, and he paid the price. What have we learned? True disciples. True disciples of Christ have a superior priest in a superior place that's waiting for us with superior promises. And because of a new and better covenant with God through Christ, we can receive a new nature. The old was external, the new is internal. We can have a new knowledge. The old was religious, the new is relational. We can have new forgiveness. The old was temporal. The new is eternal. Um, it's been quite some time. It was 1995 when an artist named Morgan Cryer released a song and it was the perfect time of life for me personally with this song. He released a lot of things, but this song came out in 95. And by 96, after we were married and back in North Carolina, I really began struggling with God's call to ministry. Because, as I've shared with you before, and I never want to glorify the sin but point the light to the Savior, I just was not uh, a man of God in any way that you would look at a man of God. And I didn't have the the school, the knowledge, but more than that, I, I had walked in sin in many ways and many times over, and, and I let the enemy continually beat me down with, I know you've confessed that, but, you know, look at how bad that is. I know you said that to God, but man, are you sure? Are you sure that that's not still on your account? And this song came into my life at a time where I just needed the truth that this guy's writing because what he's writing about is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is concluding chapter 8 with. And I'm, I'm terrible. I haven't played in years, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to try to do it because God asked me to do it, and I think that you need to hear the lyric to this. And at the end of the day, I want you to understand that all of you who have bought the enemy's lie, I can't forgive myself. You can have freedom today. You can take God at his word and believe the truth of the word over the lie of the enemy. It happened so long ago And I cried out for mercy back then I pled the blood of Jesus begged him to forgive my sin but I still can't forget it it just won't go away so I wept again Lord wash my sin but this is all he'd say this is what he's saying to you church what sin what sin that's as far away as the east is from the west. What's in? What's in? It was gone the very minute you confessed. Buried in the sea of forgetfulness. The 
heaviest thing you'll carry is a load of guilt and shame. But you were never meant to bear them, so let them go in Jesus' name. Our God is slow to anger, but quick to forgive our sin. So let him put them under the blood. Don't bring them up again. Because he'll just say, what does he say, church? What sin? What sin? That's as far away as the east is from the west. What sin? Oh, what sin? It was gone the very minute you confessed. Where did he put it? It's buried in the sea of forgetfulness. It's over. It's done. Lord, please deliver me from my accusing memory. Nothing makes me weak and weep this way. But then I hear you say, what sin? Now friends, the reality is some of you are holding on to things that God himself has let go of. And with love I say, you are not holier than him. So it's time for you to let it go too. I ask the question, what's the point? You just got it. Stand with me. Are you willing today to come? Are you willing to admit, you know what, I am holding on to some stuff? Are you willing to say, I am a child of God, but in this area, I've not really been living like it because I'm not walking in the full forgiveness that he's offered. I'm living with the old system, not the new. I feel like I've got to do something to make myself right or better or forgiven by God when in fact I know Christ has done it all. Would you be willing to come and truly, literally lay it down and leave it there? Because some of y'all like to lay it down and when I'm finishing up talking to people, you sneak back in the room and pick it up and carry it home with you because you've had it so long. It's like a warm blanket, but in fact, it's a cancerous infection. Will somebody be willing to come? Will somebody be willing to first let go of pride and just lay it down? Well, what will they think of me? Well, who cares? Will some of you come and lay down the lack of forgiveness for somebody else? But but, but you don't understand what they did. But I know what Jesus did, and that is enough. And you need to come and seek God's face to offer forgiveness and reconciliation on the one who has wronged you. But I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Quit with the non-biblical thinking. Think and act in accordance with who you are according to who God says you are. I just believe some folks need to do business with the Lord today. You can certainly do it in your seat. I think it's more powerful when you put feet to it. Somebody needs to let go of something. There's no doubt God burned this into my heart for nothing. Somebody needs to let go of something. 
Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.